All right, Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake." And that is an exhortation for you this morning as I preach. Stay. I saw some of y'all last week. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your goodness, your mercy, your loving kindness that is never ending. And it goes on and on for us. I pray, God, as we've just heard your word, Lord, that you would speak directly to us as you just did through your word But Lord, I pray that your word would bring light to our paths, Lord, and that your word would uh, awaken our hearts. And may the exhortation for us this morning truly be that we would stay awake and stay aware of your presence and of your coming, Lord. And when we leave this room, we would all collectively say how gracious our King is, that he would want to come back and rescue and, and bring his people to himself. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are indeed in an apocalyptic type uh, a section in Mark's gospel, as we read uh, last week, where we, th- where we talk through at quite a length, uh, verses 1 through 31. And it was apocalyptic in nature in that Jesus was foretelling of a, a certain event that was going to take place uh, to the Jewish people. And, and it was going to be a, 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 an apocalyptic type of event of the destruction of the temple. And this happened, we know that Jesus was good on his word, unfortunately, uh, be, because in 70 AD, when General Titus went into Jerusalem and he overtook the, the place, and he not only took the people, but he destroyed, he desecrated the temple, he destroyed the temple. And the vast majority of scholarship would agree that, yes, 1 through 31 was historical in nature in that it happened. It took place. You can go to the, where the temple used to be today, and there is nothing but rubble still some 2,000 years later. But he says here in verse 32, I think, I believe, that he starts a new thought. And this new thought is just a few verses and it kind of leaves us, I don't want to say leaves us guessing and maybe perhaps leaves us kind of with the, um, the, the Rubik's Cube. Like, well, I'm not going to figure it out. You figure it out. I'm not going to do it. You do it. Because I think that it's pretty clear what he's saying. But I also think that this is a new thought taking place that yes, while one through 31 was something that happened Jesus says, but concerning, and this was, and I, and I know this wasn't written in Greek, but it's, the language is Greek here, and he, he's saying, but concerning is another way of saying in the Greek, let's move on, 
let's change course. Let's, let's still talk about this, but let's go at length at what this is really going to be concerning, because, but concerning that day. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know your Bible, that day is very significant. In fact, if you read through your Old Testament, you're going to see that day, or maybe it's that hour, quite a bit throughout, especially if you read through some of the minor prophets. I hate calling them minor prophets because they're, they're not minor. They're pretty major, but the length of their writings was minor compared to some of the other prophets. But you'll see this type of language on that day, at that hour. Now, whenever you hear on that day or on that hour, at that hour, it probably has four different meanings to it. And they're all related into one, all related to Christ. The first meaning on, on that day would be significant in the incarnation or the arrival of Jesus Christ. Secondly, on that day or at that hour, it could be reference to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, him conquering death and the grave. But on most occasions, whenever you see on that day or at that hour, I know y'all are probably thinking, dude, you're only getting through four words and you're taking so much time. I promise I'm not going to be long as I was last week. This will move a lot quicker. I just have to make these points. So you have either the incarnation of Christ, his death and resurrection, or on that day could be the final judgment of God. Now, I know some of us, maybe we like that idea of God finally vindicating his justice on evil and on sin. Now, I know that's like politically incorrect for me to be excited about that, but I am excited about one day when the final judgment of God eradicates sin, death, cancer, heart disease, all of these bad things that is encroached in our society, one day God will judge that and it will be under his feet. And then the other part of this on that day could be, and in relation to this, is about that day when Christ returns. And when that day comes, that he brings in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is what he's talking about, but concerning that day. But concerning that day, and he's talking about that day when Christ will come and he will consummate his kingdom. The consummation of his kingdom will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And for everyone who is a part of God's church will be with him forever rejoicing. Now that's, that's theology 101 on eschatology. That Christ will turn, re return and for those who are found in him will be with him forever. And that's glorious news, and that's good news. And so Jesus here is drawing our attention to a final day that will take place. Now, what we have realized so far, well, let me, let me address this real quick. Whenever we talk about the last days, whenever we hear last days, I always get a question. Um, and the question is, do you think we're in the last days? And, and my response is always, yes. We are in the last days. And for some reason, that response doesn't necessarily um, satisfy the craving of their question. And, and so the question then becomes, well, do you believe in the last days of the last days? And then I say, well, I believe we're in the last days of the last days, maybe even in the last days of the last days of the last days. But then again, it could just be the last days. And I think what we have discovered here in Mark chapter 13 is the answer to that question. 
So in light of that, in Jesus, and what we have to realize is that in Jesus, the kingdom has come. And in the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom is coming. And then in the return of Christ, the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. In a way that I would describe what we see here in Mark chapter 13 is a way that I would say that it happened, it's happening, and it will happen. Again, this is what we're, we're seeing, that in the message of Christ, that his kingdom, that in Christ, the kingdom has come, that in the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom is coming, and at the arrival of Christ, the kingdom will be fulfilled. It is this idea of this past, present, and future reality. So in other words, when I say that it happened, this apocalyptic type prophecy, it happened. It happened in 70 AD. But what do I mean by it's happening? Well, I can't help but to think in our at least last 100 years, you think of what has already happened and what is happening in the unfolding of humanity. You think of the Holocaust. It happened. It's happening. And then to Jesus's point here, what he directs our attention to is that it will happen. In other words, what happened in 70 AD, the destruction and fall of the temple was a type of what is to come when Christ returns. Now, in light of that, there are four uh, quick things here, quick observations uh, that I want to just kind of draw out of just a few verses. And the first observation is pretty clear. All right. The first observation is this. When I read this passage, I immediately am drawn to Jesus's words when he says that we don't know that day. We don't know what day. That day when he finally returns. You don't know the day. Okay? Now, now there's been people who have paraded around in our culture within the last, it seems like it's kind of ramped up in the last 100 years, of people thinking they do know the day. And what I would tell you on those people who think they know the day is to avoid the people who think they know the day because they don't know the day. We are a part of a company of believers for over the past 2,000 years have had no clue when Christ would return. And until he returns, you still won't know. Now, in, in, in discovering and unpacking Mark 13, you look at this and say, well, I don't know. Good. You've got a good biblical interpretation of scripture because when Jesus, the son of God comes and he says, now concerning the final day of judgment, no one knows. Guess what? There is nothing to be kind of deciphered as some Da Vinci code to kind of peel back. Well, letter, letter uh, Y here represents an X and the X is like a seven and the seven is like a WWW. And like, like you think like you're just deciphering some demonic Da Vinci code or whatever it's called. No, you don't know. And let me tell you something. That is incredible news. You don't know. Here's why this is good news. You don't have to spend your life trying to figure it out either. I mean, it's pretty clear. Jesus, he's got his disciples and he looks at, remember he's talking to four, just four of his guys. He's, this is what we call the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives. So he is on this hill overlooking the temple and he looks at Peter, James, and John and he tells them, he says, listen guys, you don't know. I don't know. And I'll unpack that in just a second. 
But he says to his disciples, you don't know. And they can't get their head around this, right? If you know your Bible, you remember like in, in Acts when Jesus reappears to him. You remember the one question they ask him? It's like, if anybody needs the Holy Spirit, it's these knuckleheads. Because they ask him, well, is now the time? <laughs> Jesus like, is now, now is the time. We're ready. It's like they have no complete understanding of what's happening when Jesus told them. They've, they've forgotten. It's just been a few weeks. And they've already forgotten when Jesus says, you don't know. And they're already asking, well, hey, you know, you know now. Like, is this now? Is it right now? Thank God that the Holy Spirit rests upon them and brought them into wisdom out of their ignorance. And thank God that the Holy Spirit rests upon his people today that brings us out of our ignorance into a wisdom and understanding that if Jesus doesn't know, then we don't know. Now, what does Jesus mean by saying that even I don't know? Now, this is, this is what I believe. You don't, you don't have to agree with me. I don't care. I'm probably right. You're wrong. It doesn't matter. That's neither here nor there. And remember, because I have the microphone and you don't. The Father has ultimate authority. And when Jesus comes, as we read in Philippians, that he kind of sort of laid down like a sense of his, a part of his di divinity, like becoming a full man. And in so doing, what he does is he aligns himself and he submits himself to the Father and the Father's will. And this is the reason why he says, I don't know, because he has fully submitted himself to the Father at this point. Now, here's what I think. I, Jesus now is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And I believe that now he fully has, he, he now has full understanding of all things. And now all things include when he returns. But that's neither here nor there. Here's what we need to know with this. It's real simple, simple point. You don't know. However, just because we don't know, and I think this is what Jesus is getting to, that doesn't mean that we should not be prepared for his arrival. If you look at verse 32, he says, no one knows. And then in verse 33, you do not know when the time comes. But then in 35, he says, but stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. And when you see this, you look at, um, I think it's Matthew 25. I'll, we'll turn there in just a second. Let's turn to Matthew 25. This is kind of an echoing or the foreshadowing of the, the story or the, the parable rather of the, the, the tenants here, the, the 10 virgins here. Instead of me just mumbling everywhere all, all over the place, let's just look at Matthew chapter 25 and I'll show you. There you have the story of the 10 virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now, pause for just a second. This is very Jewish language, part of Middle Eastern culture. Us on the West here, we have no idea what he's talking about when it comes to this type of wedding here. You have this picture of this Jewish wedding. They knew that weddings was a celebration that would last for a week. And so in verse 5, as the bridegroom delayed, and that's significant, there was a delay. As there's a delay, they get drowsy. They get sleepy. They get tired. They didn't know when he was coming and they fall asleep. And at the midnight cry, here is the bridegroom. Now, there, there is this responsibility of an individual carrying a lamp 
crying out, saying, here's the bridegroom. You, come on, you got to think of, of none other than John the Baptist out in the wilderness, swinging around his, his lamp, pointing his finger. I'm not the bride. I'm his best man. I'm just here to point to you that, the, that, that he, the groom, has arrived. The kingdom is here. Christ is here. It's this picture right here. And then in verse number seven, look what it says. And they all rose up and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your, excuse me, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise said, since there won't be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were buying, going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut afterwards. The other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. And this is parallel to what Jesus is saying here in this discourse, right? Watch out. Just because you don't know the time doesn't mean it's time for you to sleep. This means this is a time for you to stay awake, stay aware of what is happening. And notice how the virgins and they, they, they go after somebody else's oil. And, and maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into this, but I just want to uh, just take that. And man, I could, we could probably preach a sermon on this. But think about that. They're trusting and relying on someone else's oil to give to them. But Jesus shuts the door and says, you're not in. You were not awake. You were not aware. I don't know you. And I think what this would say to us is that one day the door is going to shut. And you will not be able to say to Christ, well, 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 my mom was a believer. So shouldn't that be the oil for me? Well, my husband or my wife or, or, or my grandmama or, or my grandfather, they were believers. Like, wasn't that enough? No, it's not enough to rely on someone else's that you have to stay awake, that the call is for you to be aware, the call is for you to stay awake and persevere because that's what he's talking about, persevering in your salvation and your faith. Now, we're, we don't know the time and, and that does not give us an excuse uh, for being unprepared. And what this thirdly ought to tell us is that that ought to be a motivation to us you, we see this come out in particularly in verse 34. You don't know the day or the time, but it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. The interesting thing about the second coming of the Lord, it is provided quite a lot of agitation for many people. You can hear some people and their dogmatisms say things like the end is here, the end is here, the end is here. The end is here. I am 41 years old. And I have always known people who would tell me, oh, the end is near. The end is near. And it goes back to the question, well, what end are you talking about? The end of the end of the end? But these are the people who are believing like, no, I'm thinking in the next year, the end is near. And I, and I knew a guy back in Georgia, not going to name his name, 
several years ago, always dogmatic about it. The end is near, and the end is near. Let me tell you something. I hoped that the end was near, because if the end was near, I'd never have to hear him belabor the point anymore, and I wouldn't have to listen to him no more. Thank God. Now, listen, I appreciated the eminence, the urgency that filled him and challenged me in my own belief, and it stirred me. But if anything that it did, it also brought a lot of agitation. Brought a lot of agitation because instead of being focused on what Christ is saying here, stay awake, get to work, it was succumb to the end is near. Therefore, I'm just going to lift my hands and do nothing. I like St. Augustine. Um, I like to quote the old dead people because I feel like they were just smarter than modern day people. That's not an accusation on you. You're smart. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. But I'm talking about most scholars here. I like to quote it. St. Augustine said this, he who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who says it is really near or he who says it is really far. But he who, whether it is imminent or far, awaits it with awe of his heart. That is a summary of what you and I just read and what Christ is exhorting us to do. We don't know. That doesn't give us an excuse. In fact, what it does is it gives us motivation to do something. Whether it is the end or the end of the end, it is not time for us to lift our hands up and say, you know what, I'm done. Because what I have seen is for people who go about in that direction, well, then there's no point about caring for the lost if the end is here. Where there's no point about caring about political things, where there's no point of caring about um, whether, you know, the earth is inflamed or whatever. There's no point in caring for my neighbor. You see how that can get a little twisted? Because that is the antithesis of what Christ is compelling us to do. It is imminent and it is unexpected. And so we have to ask the question, then what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to believe them both. That it's imminent and it's unexpected and we have work to do. In verse 34, Jesus goes, has gone, right? He's talking about the servant and he's left his servants are to be engaged actively and responsibly and individually. So he puts his servants. So who are the servants then? Who are the servants? The, the servants are us. And the servants are doing a work. And the work is twofold. The servants are doing the work of the gospel proclamation. And that's everybody. That's not Matthew Thrower. That's not a pastor. That's not a missionary. That's not an evangelist. That's you. And it's the work that Christ has uniquely wired you to do individualistically. At the end of Matthew's account, he says, Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Who is the servant? It's the one who is working when he comes. 
It's not the one who says, well, there's no point in me being involved, where there's no point in me doing anything about it. It's the one who says, his return is imminent. His return is unexpected. I'm going to be found faithful in my work for the gospel. The other point here, and maybe this is my last point, I don't know, we'll see, that if we don't know, and if that causes to action, then what is uncertain is actually certain, and the certain thing is that Christ, in all of his glory, will return. And, and I love this because it's a big picture event. Mark 13, 32 through 37 that we just read. It's a big picture event. And it's pointing us to this idea that one day Christ will return. And then in verse 7, this is why this is a good summary. summary. And, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is why I think that this is not just a part of those first 31 verses, but Jesus is looking deep down into the future because he's no longer just talking to disciples. He says, I'm talking to everyone. This is at the point of the movie where the main character locks eyes in, the, in camera number one and he looks at camera number one and he says to you, stay awake. And he's not saying this just to four guys up on a hill having a, an apocalyptic conversation. He's talking to people who are in 2023 in a town that needs the gospel. And he's talking to us today. And he's talking to everyone at all times, at all places. And he's exhorting them to what? Stay awake. We have no time to sleep. We have no time to just, you know, throw our hands up and say, well, I don't know what this is all about. And so I'm just going to leave it to the scholars to figure out. And I'll just, you know, get in my little cabin up on the hill and just live my life by myself and, and just have no interaction. You know, Christ is compelling us and he's telling us, and this is a command for us. This is how he began. This is not a call to contemplation. This is a call to action. And remember, this is how he began in, in verse 9. Be on guard. Be on guard. Stay awake. Uh, verse 33, stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake. It's, it's thank, you, know, you don't have to be a scholar to read the Bible and understand what is happening and, and have a proper eschatological view. Here's the proper view. Stay awake. Isn't it funny how we complicate the study of end times? That is pretty clear. Stay awake. The exhortation is given. The exhortation is given to the four. And then Jesus goes broadly to all believers at all times and all places. And he exhorts us to do the same. Stay awake. It's pretty striking and very clear to us, there's a warning that's there, be on guard. And then there's the exhortation for us, that is to stay awake. That there is a day coming, the judgment of the Lord, and there will be a day when it is too late. 
There will be a day when Jesus says in Matthew 11 or, or in Matthew 25 that the door will close. And, there, and, and, and let, me, let, me just, let me press on some of you this morning if I can. I preach to you every week, week after week. And I know, I ain't an idiot, that some of you come in here every single week and you're playing games with Christ. You're playing games with salvation. And you keep saying to yourself, I'll forsake my lifestyle. I'll surrender it all tomorrow. Which, by the way, Satan's favorite word is tomorrow. Because these ten virgins, they, they believed the lie that they had a few more hours. And I'll just take a nap. I got tomorrow. But please hear me. One day there will be a day when it's too late for you. And you will be praying and hoping that you just step back into time and make that commitment to Christ now. If there's another exhortation in here, it's that. One day the door is going to close. I'm thinking Genesis chapter 9 when, when the flood came and they were mocking and they were laughing at Noah. Oh, oh, oh there's no flood coming, you moron. Every day would walk, there would be a new guy that walked by. What you doing, Noah? Well, I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Well, there's going to be a massive cataclysmic global flood. <laughs> You're stupid. Next day. Hey, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. You better get in. Oh, that's stupid. Next day. Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. There's a flood coming. You better get in. That's stupid. And then the rain came and the door closed and God poured out his wrath and judgment and there will likewise be another day. And you may hear me, and you may think the same thing. Oh, that's stupid preacher. You just keep on saying the same thing. Yeah, okay. One day there's going to be a judgment coming. If you ain't in the ark of Christ, then you will experience the wrath of God. Oh, that's stupid. I got tomorrow. I'll put my life together then. You have just bought into the lie of tomorrow. And the exhortation for us that Christ is compelling us to listen, heed to the warning. There may not be a tomorrow for you. One day the judgment of God is going to be unleashed. And you better be found in the ark of Christ. How are you found? You're staying awake, enduring in your faith. The parable of the virgins in verse 11, after the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. I don't know you. What a striking warning that is. It's why the Bible would always say to us that salvation is for today. It's a warning about personal salvation and the, the warning in this particular parable especially in the parable of these talents and is about wasting our lives, wasting our lives for anything other than the gospel of Christ. He says, I, I'm, I'm going to leave to my servants and you've got work to do. It's a warning. It's an exhortation telling us work. You've got work to do. Don't be found asleep. 
work for the gospel. And let me finish in this way. And then we'll sing a song and we'll be out of here. And you'll be left with the question of, what, did I, what am I to do with this? I think if we pay attention to this and we step back and we look at the broad picture and we, we look at this and we say to ourselves, okay, I think I've got this clear that the next thing on the calendar is Christ's return, whether it's long delayed or whether it's tomorrow, I've got to live in the expectation of his return now. I think that's what we do with this. We look at this. We don't look at it as a Rubik's Cube or um, one of those demonic Lego sets that has like 18,000 pieces and we're just, you know, or, or an Ikea piece of furniture, right? We don't look at it like this. We look at it with clarity. And clarity that is given to us is that Christ will return and I'm going to live in expectation of his return. And when Christ returns, there will be a cry. There will be two cries. There will be either a cry of anguish. Think about the, the, the well, well, why did you close the door? Tomorrow. I thought I was going to get my life together then. And you may, you may think that, but when Christ returns, there's going to be a, a cry of anguish, of pain of people who said, I've invested my life in building up my kingdom. And instead of building up the kingdom of Christ and the door will be slammed in your face and you will have a cry of anguish. And then there'll be a cry, not only of anguish, because we have failed to see Christ and work for Christ, but there will also be a cry of joy. And the cry of joy is only going to come from one people group. And the people group is going to be those whom Christ has redeemed. It'll bring foolish anguish to the foolish and joy to those who were found faithful. Let me ask you something. If Christ were to return, and if his return was today, what would your cry be? Would your cry be anguish? Would your cry be, I should have listened? Or would your cry be that of joy? If Christ were to return, what would your cry be? Would it be a cry to delight when you see Christ face to face? Would the cry be, oh, here's the one. Here is the one who took my shame. Here is the one who paid my debt. Here is the one who stayed awake on the cross. He stayed awake on the cross. Remember, they tried to give him some sedatives that would help him. And, and, and they tried to give him the wine that would act as some type of, of sedation to him. But he declined it and he stayed awake. And, and had he not have done that, then he wouldn't have been able to look at the, the thief on the cross and tell the thief on the cross that, that today you will be with me in paradise. Christ stayed awake. He stayed awake for you. He stayed awake for me. And one day I'll behold him. And I'll see the one who took my pain, who took my shame, 
who took my sin and he bore the wrath of God on the cross of Christ. And my cry will not be in anguish. My cry will be that of joy. Here's my savior. And Christ stayed awake for me. He stayed awake for you. And the exhortation to you is, will you stay awake for him?